Today, we continue our conversation on Christ and culture, and we'll specifically start to look at how our inherited heritage, our inherited meaning of that topic, started to show cracks through the deconstruction that happens in everyday life. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the continuation of this conversation. So that's kind of where Ryan and I have been probably the majority of our life, and we had so many benefits from that. We kind of lived in this tension between church and culture in the way that we've talked about so far. But both Ryan and I, we have had experiences that moved us into this frontier that we're talking about. And the frontier isn't a defined space. It's just a place where we're not so sure what we think, what we believe. We have ideas and we have conversations around that. But those are always, um, they always start with an experience that we've had. And so we wanted to share those experiences with you and then start talking about how we started to move away from this uh, idea of church and culture. So Ryan, what was your experience that kind of moved you into this frontier? I started, for me, one of the experiences, I started to notice um, how much this set me apart from people who weren't Christians. Now, I mean, on the one hand, you say, well, yeah, that's what you're going for, right? <laughs> but what it seemed to be doing was it, is it made it very difficult for me to relate to people who weren't, who didn't believe the same thing I did because I was always concerned about, you know, not doing something wrong. So I couldn't do things with them or I couldn't go to certain movies or, you know, whatever it was. Right. I always felt, um, the odd man out. Um, and it also, I became uncomfortable with this idea that everybody who wasn't just like me was on their way to hell, you know? Mm. And what I started to notice was that there's a lot of, um, what's the right word? There's a lot of marginalization wrapped up in this, whether I don't know if it was always intended or not. Um, but it was the result of a lot of it. And, you know, I think the other big experience for me was, you know, I'm gay. So I was a one of those marginalized groups, which mm-hmm. didn't fit in this world that was often demonized as part of the problem, you know? And so yeah. the best way I could describe it was I became really uncomfortable with the fact that it was always about who was in and who was out. And um, it was somehow up to me to make that determination all the time. Okay. So when in your life did that kind of start happening for you? I think it really started around... You know, honestly, I don't know that it was until seminary that it really started for me because, you know, I went to a Bible college for undergrad and that was very, a very insular community, right? Even though I didn't live there, it was, everybody was the same group as me. We're all trying to be in ministry somehow, you know? And so I don't know that I had a lot of outside um, exposure to anything else that was different. It was when I started to meet people who weren't just like me 
many of whom, or some of whom at least, seemed to have genuine expressions of faith that didn't fit within the paradigms I was told faith had to fit within. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I met a, a someone who was a very devout Mormon, and yet they seemed to have a very real faith in God, and I was told that wasn't possible. Mm-hmm. You know, um, or I met somebody who was who was gay. And, you know, even though I was working on that myself, it took me a while, but, and they had faith in God and and they seemed to be not, they didn't seem to be walking around all the time, um, living in sin as they would put it. Um, like they didn't seem to fire. Right. Exactly. Right. Like their feet had not caught on fire and dragged them straight to hell. Um, (laughs) which is sort of a joke and sort of not, but, um, anyway, it was just a lot of, uh, intersections, I guess, that eventually happened over time where I got to be really uncomfortable with the fact that almost everybody was going to hell, you know? Mm. Yeah. I think I would share that general premise that general premise, general experience that uh, I started to lose this idea of church and culture as we've described it in college, because I went to, as I've said, the state school. And there I met people that were radically different than me, radically so, in every sense of the word. I mean, the college I went to was pretty, uh, to use the word, which I'm not a huge fan of it, but pretty progressive in terms of its sexuality. And um, I went to Germany with a transgendered person. And you know, every single kind of life experience that somebody would have, of course, every kind of race, but also kind, every race was represented there. And on top of all of that, there were a lot of international folks that I knew. And in fact, I tended to gravitate towards people that were not like me. Uh, and I that started right around college. It happened a little before because we moved from California to the Midwest, which I thought was the worst thing that could happen to a kid. And um, I'm not sure I disagree with that still today, but it really started to solidify in college because I just got to know a whole bunch of people. And what I started to realize is that uh, most of them are actually pretty cool people. Most of them are kind of nice to me, as long as I'm not being an asshole. Yeah, they didn't seem to be insidiously plotting to um, destroy my faith, you know? Yeah. In fact, most of them were pretty apathetic about whatever I was doing. They're like, hey, if that's you, that's you. Have at it. Right. I Like, I even encountered some people who were like, hey, I think your faith is really cool and it's awesome for you. You know, huh. they just yeah. didn't want it to necessarily be theirs, but they had no problem with me having it, which, again, <laughs> was not what I was told to would happen, yeah. you know? Yeah, I think for me, though, when it really started to come to head was actually when I went to seminary because I started to experience something that, you know, is I don't want to say it's similar to what you've gone through, Ryan, because it's not. But it's the closest I think I can get as a Christian in my upbringing. And that is that I started to find myself on the outskirts of what was going on at the Mm. seminary. Yeah. I found that um, because I had these experiences with people that were so different than I was, that I was saying things and people were like, wow, that's really cool, or wow, that's really wrong, and starting to get mad at me, or something like that. And the best way, um, because of our uh, the seminary that I went to, 
was supported by a collection of colleges. The best, we call them systems people. So people who went through the system, probably Lutheran schools all through high school as well. But then they went to college at that, and then they went straight into seminary. And what I felt there was a very strong contrast between myself and somebody who was company line. And that's completely not fair to any of those people, but that's just the experience I had where I started to say, wait a second, if that's what you're supposed to be, there's no way I'm that. Hmm. Yeah, And it started to really drive home this separation that I was feeling internally. It was just like an external marker that I'm not quite sure I'm into this whole Christ and culture way of thinking. Well, and you know, you know how we talked about um, for, for me, this idea of righteous living was supposed to, um, you know, uh, bring people to Jesus like they'd see me living a certain way and that would convict them or it would just inspire them or whatever. I don't know if I ever saw that happen, you know, (laughs) and maybe I can't, maybe I did. I'm not saying no one ever came to faith, you know, but I'm just saying like, I can't today I'm sitting here. I cannot remember a time where someone said, you know, I noticed there was something different about you. What is it that you believe? Right. And I don't think now today I I used to feel guilty about that, but I don't think that's because I was doing something wrong necessarily other than that. Maybe that whole approach was wrong. But anyway, um, like, again, it was another instance of like, wait a minute, this doesn't seem to be working for me anyway, the way it's supposed to work. Why isn't this happening? I mean, I'm, you know, like this should be happening or should have happened more than it did up to this point. Yeah, nobody was drawn to your magnetic faith, huh? I mean, sometimes people would would say something about, yeah, I can tell that you really believe this or, you know, even that it's coming from a good place. But nobody, as far as I can remember, ever went from there to now help me say the prayer of salvation, which is what was supposed to happen, you know? Right. And I used to think that was my fault because I wasn't doing it well enough or I was too afraid to actually tell that or, you know, whatever it was. But Mm. but. um. Yeah, there was this feeling of like um, disillusionment um, with this whole idea or approach because it not like it didn't seem to be happening, A, but B, it seemed to be I started also running into people who were very jaded and hurt by the church. And not only was it not working, but it seemed to be very damaging to them and, you know, myself, too as I later went through that story, but, but this idea that like, no, it wasn't just that it wasn't working, that it was actively working against some people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true for me too. Um, the experience of feeling like I was different or on the outside of the company line at the very least. I mean, like I said, it's not equivalent to very many differences because, I was still a a white guy going, a very privileged white guy going to a seminary with a bunch of white people who uh, were mostly men and so on and so forth. But that little, little prick allowed me to see something that I wasn't considering beforehand, which was, if I believe this, then all those friends, all those nice people, all those good people that I met, then they're wrong on more than just an intellectual level, which is where I was kind of living throughout most of college. 
they're wrong on an eternal damnation level. Now, they're wrong on a very serious level. Right. They're not wrong on trivia. They're wrong eternally. Yeah. And I started to wonder... At that time, I started to wonder, why does it have to be so severe? Why do the lines have to be that strong? Is Scripture really talking that way? Does Jesus really talk about there's this line, if you cross it, then you're not then you're going to hell, you're not part of the love, you're not part of what's going on here through my ministry, through all of that. And I just uh, didn't see it. Yeah, you know, for for me, there was a specific story in the Bible that really, really gave me a hard time with all this. Surprise, it's in the book of Acts. Um, But it's, yeah, I know, right? Surprise. Um, But it's a story of, and Nate's heard me talk about this story a lot because it's been so central to this, a lot of this journey for me. But um, it's when Paul or Saul at this point has had his experience on the road and he's blind and he's waiting somewhere and, and God comes to Ananias and tells him to go pray for Saul. And Ananias is like, yeah, no, I'm good. Thanks. I mean, or at least I'm really scared and don't want to do that. You know, like he says, God, don't you know who this is that we're talking about? And, you know, the first up till then in Acts, it's been talking about how Saul was ravaging the church and persecuting Christians and all this stuff. So God tells him, you know, go anyway, because this guy's my chosen instrument. And Ananias goes and does it, right? And, you know, he prays for Saul, the scales come off, and then Saul changes his name to Paul and look at all the things that Paul did for the faith. Mm-hmm. And what I saw in that story was like, well, wait a minute. Saul, yes, he'd encountered Jesus, but I mean, he'd still done all these things and not repented for them, right? So here was God sending someone directly to someone who should have still been on the out group. Right. Yeah. And it's like, so shouldn't we be doing that? You know, and how how can we do that if we insist that people change everything about their lives first? Like, does that even make any sense? Right. Yeah. No, it doesn't. But yeah, no, is the answer. But I mean, like that story was really central for me of like our faith has become very safe in our walled city on a hill. And we'll let people in sometimes if they look and act exactly and talk exactly the way we do. But if not, we're going to stay here and they're going to stay out there. And and if you want to be uncharitable about it, to hell with them, literally. Yeah, right. right. Um, we might be sad about it, but it's how it is. And so I just and there are other stories in the Bible you could find, too. But I, that one was a, a big one for of like, I just don't know how to square that with this system or this idea or this approach to culture that I've been um, brought up in. Yeah, for me, um, as I'm dealing with this experience that I had in seminary, I, I then go on, of course, to the doctorate work. And as I'm doing that, something really personal happened. And I don't want to share too many details because I want to ask permission, but someone that I know and I love is close to me. And they told me they were no longer a Christian. And the reason why was generally that that hell existed. And during that time, I was really questioning that narrative of judgment and the way that it's generally taught, which is an underpinning of this, one of those strings, those threads that we're not really going to talk about explicitly. But it made me start think, uh, made me start to think specifically 
how people would typically respond because at that time and even now I don't respond that way anymore. Like I, I wouldn't say, you know, well, it doesn't matter if you believe in hell or not, <laughs> it right. still exists. Right. And, um, it, and it's not God. We would usually go to a defense of God. It's not God who wants to make people go to hell. It's that we're sinners and God has saved us from hell. And that's something we really want to talk about. Um, usually that's where we go. Where I went in my conversation with this person and in my own mind was how I was not happy with those arguments, how I was not happy with that the thread of that conversation. And instead, I started to ask, why is this a hard thing for this person to admit outside of the very real pain of leaving something of that person's childhood? And when I started to ask that question, I came upon something that I then had to explore with Ryan and with others. And I think it was around that he that, that this person was really afraid of the power and control of the narrative that i in that moment represented to this person hmm. Hmm. which i mean kind of all these things we've been talking about so far are really kind of couched in this idea of power right because what I what I realized or am still realizing, because it, it's hard to see all the implications of all of this stuff, you know, um, when it's been so uh, just a, such a natural central part of your life. But what I realized was that as the one who was against culture, as the ones who got to set what the idyllic that's not that's not the best word, but what the the best form of almost in a platonic sense, right? Like the ideal yeah. culture should be um, what we then got to do or maybe had to do, or I don't know, but what, what we were able to do then is we had in groups and out groups. We were the in group, everybody else was out. And we got to decide then the terms of who goes to heaven, who goes to hell, who is a Christian, who isn't right. Um, now, I mean, some people would probably say that we didn't decide that, right? God did. That's what you were talking about. But in essence, or what I experienced, though, was here are we, the church, who is supposed to bring the gospel of hope to people. But what we've done is we've made this knowingly or not. You know, I'm not convinced it was knowing for everybody or yeah. even maybe the majority. But for some of the leaders, especially, we've given ourselves a privileged position of power over everybody else. And that is deeply problematic when we're talking about something like the gospel, when we're talking about something that's supposed to be for everyone, when we're talking about God or, or whatever else it is. Um, it it started with the people at the top, whoever those people were. But it, like I said earlier, it also put me in a position where I was constantly, at least internally, even if I never said it to them, deciding who got to go to heaven and who got to go to hell, right? Or who had to, whether they wanted to or not, is maybe a better way to put it, right? Yeah. And I think at the very least, like if that's strong for someone listening, at the very least, you got to decide or represent what was right and what was wrong. 
right we were the standard you know uh, theoretically which is interesting because if you've been to any churches you know that gosh i hope we're not the standard um <laughs> and i don't even mean to be a jerk there i'm just saying yeah. uh, we're all a mess you know I, but that's the thing is like i started to look around and say wait a minute we don't got this all figured out here we we just we don't you know you see people in churches that's supposed to be this you know have the key for what culture should be and Within our own churches, we're not we're we're being terrible to each other or um, whatever it is, you know. So I just became really uncomfortable with being in this position or being part of a group that had that was in the position to have that much authority over the not just the lives but the eternal destination of every person on earth. Yeah, yeah. And as I was experiencing this, as we were discussing this in general, um, we came upon, um, in our graduate work, we came upon a guy named Michael Foucault. Uh, and Michael Foucault is interesting for both of us because, uh, one, he's gay, and so there's that part of that for, I don't think you dove too much into that, but it was very attractive to you, I think, at one point of um, his thought because of that and other stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, he was attractive because um, it's postmodern stuff, post-structuralism. And his basic argument is that, look, everything's bathed in power. Everything. You can't get away from power. And the way that it works in the world is when people interact with one another, or, or really for him, it was more institutions interact with people. There's always power in play. And it is almost like a primary thing that's going on in each of those relationships. People that are in power are trying to keep power, and people who are not in power are either oppressed by that power or, at times, trying to gain that power for themselves. Well, I mean, like, look at what we talked about with the culture wars, right? One of the main, if not the central element of the culture wars was the... um, the the Christians, whatever you, however you want to define that group, right, were trying to keep the power that they had over society, over culture, over um, whatever you know, whatever it is that they thought that they were in danger of losing. Yeah, and it was interesting because it's not a completely defining thing for I. I don't think it's for you. Certainly, it's not for me. Uh, but it was like a key, a window into power dynamics within my conversations as a Christian to a non-Christian, the church and the world. And it started to really make me question things that, uh, as Ryan and I have talked, many people don't really question. And one of the big ones is uh, the relationship between church and state and specifically Christians and politics. Because what we started to see, at least, and I'll say it with me, what I started to see is that Christians in my world were very upset at other people using politics to get what they want, and then in the same breath (laughs) say, you know, you need to vote for somebody who's pro-life. And if you don't vote for somebody who's pro-life, you're going to hell. Or Right. And we need to elect this person as president because they will appoint judges to the Supreme Court who will then overturn Roe v. Wade or marriage or, or whatever it is. Right. Um, 
yeah, it's like it's really talking out of both sides of their mouth. But I don't think that most people who would say these things realize that. Like, I don't think for most people it was necessarily nefarious. Right. But Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, very much that was definitely happening. They'd accuse, um, you know, Democrats or liberals or socialists or whatever of doing all these things and trying to seize power through and through uh, infiltrating the schools or the media or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And then, like you said, go immediately on to talk about how we got to vote pro-life people in. We got to vote for people who are Christians. We got to, you know, do whatever it is. Defend traditional marriage. You know, uh, all of that. Because, I mean, what is that talking about then? Because then we'll be in control again, right? Right. Yeah, and the the betting of power and politics when it comes to the church was something that just started to make me question this relationship we have to culture. One of the things that I'm starting to say a lot more is most of us are on autopilot. Most of us are that way uh, until either a trauma happens or a new thought occurs to us or something like that. And I suspect that many Christians are just on autopilot, uh, and that's not a a negative thing. It's how we live most of our lives. Uh, When it comes, I'm sorry, we're on autopilot when it comes to power and control, that we don't see a link between our beliefs whether they be pro-life or pro-choice even, on the other side too, and the political power that we're using to make that belief either a real reality in our political world or justified. And I think the other part of that is there are certain um, loud voices, certain leaders within the Christian world, uh, at least the evangelical world, for sure. I don't know about the rest of it, but who I think do understand this very well. And I think that they are trying to manipulate systems in order to have power over other people. Um, I don't think, I mean, that's far from the vast, that's not the vast majority of people or pastors, right? But there are some people out there, I think, and I don't, it doesn't matter what their names are. You can probably think of them as I say it. Um, Like they they do exist and that is happening. But I think you're right for the average person, the the majority of people in these in this world who are um, voting these ways or telling other people to do that. I think it's coming from a um, an autopilot or an unrealizing position of of what that actually means and what effects it actually has. Yeah, and for the person who's on autopilot, it's coming from a good place. It's coming from a place where um, they want to practice what they preach. They want to vote with their religion or whatever it might be, and all that's fine. I mean, why wouldn't you vote with your beliefs? If you don't vote for your beliefs, then why are you voting, right? Well, that's what I think everybody does. You know, the socialist votes because they think, um, you know, it's going to accomplish their causes they believe in. And the, you know, the the pro-choice person votes for, I mean, that's, you're right. That's what everybody does, I think. Yeah, but where it came for me, where it started to like peel away, isn't so much of people voting where their beliefs are, people voting that way. It's when you add the layer of rightness and wrongness to it, uh, which is, you know, at the heart of this um, culture war talk that we're having, is when you add that and you start to do violent things in your speech or otherwise, of course, people do it 
through their fists and through their guns and their weapons and so on and so forth. But when you add that layer to that, it starts to become problematic for me, uh, this narrative that the church is good and fights this good fight against the culture. Yeah, I think, yeah, like I think an example of that is um, some Christians will um, like uh, stand outside of Planned Parenthoods or whatever in their hold signs, or they'll be very obviously praying, you know, um, and there's this, I think this idea that it will um, hopefully convince people not to have abortions. I think that's the idea, which yeah. if you believe what they do about abortion, I, do, I understand where that's coming from, you know. But the problem with that is that it doesn't actually address any of the underlying causes that put someone in a spot where they would think about having an abortion, you know, and I can't speak about everybody, but many of the people who who hold those signs or do those things are often not supportive of things that might help a person decide not to have an abortion, you know? And yeah. so we frame this whole thing in that we're standing up for these, the rights of the unborn, you know, and we or we'll say we don't vote for someone who believes in, I've actually heard this, murdering babies, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then we find ourselves not for the, the vast majority of people in the church, not willing to do anything other than say those things or take that public um, stand. I don't. I don't want to say it's a show because that's a little unfair when I don't know the action, the the person doing it, you know. But to make this um, presentation to the public or whatever you want to put it, and not and be unwilling to do the hard stuff that might help um, help achieve the cause we're trying to achieve or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Where so the way I phrase that is you can be against abortion, but what are you doing to make it so abortion is less attractive to people? Like are you okay? Like how how are you helping people afford healthcare costs if you're in the United States? How are you helping with education so that people understand how the body works and, and all of that stuff? You know, like um, where do you stand on things like birth control and, and all this and who pays for daycare for poor kids and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Like it's not enough to say this is wrong and I'm going to publicly point it out and it's terrible and then go home and think, OK, now we're good. Right. But it's like, you know. What about the person who feels that way? It, like in in um as a as a different example, what about the person who who believes that abortion is not okay and fosters children or volunteers mm -hmm. in hospitals in a, or in some kind of program that helps young mothers to be, you know, or who helps yeah. them after they have the the child or all this kind of stuff. And so it's it's deeply problematic when we frame things as we are fighting for right. We are fighting to redeem people and redeem culture while at the same time, not being willing to do the heavy lifting required to yeah. actually see that take place. Yes. For me, that was like, so clearly this is going to make sense the more and more this goes on. But for me, the logical cognitive dissonance between those thoughts, highlighted the power structure at play for me. So here's the here's the thing. You you say that you're against abortion and yet and I remember the person somebody I don't even know anymore, but I remember the person, they were adamant against abortion. But when I suggested, well, 
you know, what can we do? I wasn't asking, I wasn't doing the um, accusatory thing. Like you're not doing anything. I honestly asked this person, I said, what can we do right now to make it less attractive for somebody? And I rattle off some ideas like, you know, diapers are a big expense. So is formula. Why don't we go to the store and just buy some diapers and formula for a new mom? There you go. Yeah. Why Why don't we do something like that to make abortion less attractive because you're removing one of the hurdles. And the outright answer was that socialists were not going to do that. Right, exactly. Like there's these warring um, viewpoints within this system that says, well, we're supposed to love everybody and help everybody, but we can't help people because we can't help certain people in certain circumstances because then we're, you know, whatever, socialists or communists or what have you, you know. And and putting all of that aside, what we're ignoring is the plight of the 15 year old girl or or the 17 year old woman or whatever it is who's pregnant and has no idea how to take care of herself, let alone a baby. Right. Who can't afford um, who's is very poor and her entire family is poor. It's like we don't care about helping that person because we're too busy making sure everybody knows we think it's wrong. You know, and I know that sounds kind of harsh, but that's that that was the thought process that I was seeing in all these kinds of things. For me, it was more like so I get curious and I ask why a lot. So my question to myself was, okay, so you're not willing to work on a solution that can actually do some benefit or let's say it differently, that will have more benefit than just opposing abortion. I think there's benefit to that. But you can do more and actually do something that's tangible for you because you can actually see an area where you're making an impact. Why wouldn't you do that? And as I thought through that, especially because it was a socialist or leftist, I don't remember exactly, it was something like that. Since that was the argument, I naturally responded to my question with, it's about power. It's about power of being right, power of having moral superiority, maybe. Mm, For sure. But it's like, why is that so much of what matters to them? But then, you know, of course, with Michael Foucault and some of the stuff that we discussed, um, not so much here, but other places, it, it became clear to me pretty quickly you don't actually care about abortion. That is what you talk about. What you actually care about is having the power of rightness and um, all the power structures that connect to that, whether they be political, social, or otherwise. Right. And I mean, we're not saying everyone who's pro-life is like that, right? No, I no. think for most people who are quote unquote pro-life, it's more of a, I don't think they realize the implications um, of a lot of these things that they're saying or doing, or or they don't know how to imagine what it would be like to be in the position of this 13-year-old girl who's pregnant or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's, and you know, I mean, abortion is just the one we picked because it's a very, I think, concrete example of what we're talking about. But I think you're right when you said it's still, again, about power, right? And what I started to notice was how concentrated the power was along certain lines, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. we 
most people who are pro-life that I experienced anyway, were not, don't usually talk about the, how things like race and stuff plays into these subjects. Right. And what I started to realize was a lot of these people with power by and large, at least in America, right. Are straight white men Mm -hmm. almost across the board. And, you know, I said, well, like, wait a minute, should it be that way? If, we're all this, you know, if we're all, if there's neither Jew nor Greek or slave nor free or male nor female, if we're all one in Christ, should it be yeah. that only one group of people has all of the control? Yeah. And I think it's really important to just reemphasize something you've been saying, which is I don't, the, Michael Foucault would say the same thing, I believe. I don't know him as well, his work as well. But it's not that people do this intentionally, it's that power is such a a force in this world that it cannot help but be intimately connected with everything. I said that Michael Foucault's theory of power is that we're bathed in power everywhere. That's just a very brief and, and short version of his theory. Yeah, and there's no relationship that doesn't have a power dynamic in it. It's not necessarily... I'll say it like that. It's not necessarily that only straight white men are trying to get power. It just happens to be that straight white men happen to be in power during this time that we see it. And most of time. And most of time, yes. And they want to hold on to it. And as all people will, they use their beliefs in order to hold on to that power as much as they can. And what I personally started to notice is, I remember very clearly how it went. It was after an election, and I realized all of the people that I voted for who were uh, pro-life, I wasn't a single-issue voter, but that time all of them that were pro-life, none of them moved the needle at all. Exactly. Yeah, I I was a single-issue voter in in you know, at least in essence, I was. And I had the same realization. I was like, wait a minute, these people are supposed to appoint the judges who change it and they don't. They're supposed to pass laws who um, are going to make abortion illegal. And it it didn't happen. Right. And it didn't even seem like there was any effort to do so. No. And there were plenty of opportunities where they had all the control of the House and Senate to be able to do that. And yet it doesn't get done. Yeah. I mean, I will say these days, I, I wonder, you know, we, we may see, I, I don't know, but by and large, I became very disillusioned with the fact that, again, this isn't working the way it's supposed to be working. Yeah. Well, and then I started, so that's just, as Ryan said, that's just one example because we stumbled upon that one. But you can take any of these things. You can take the the war on Christmas. like. That is about power. That's about cultural power and being able to define the narrative for everyone of what this season is for them, at least in the meta way of, hey, as a society, let's just say it's Christmas. You can do Kwanzaa, you can do Hanukkah, you can do whatever you want. But, you know, when you're in public, cut the shit and just say Merry Christmas. Mm-hmm. That's right. For me, I started to see that this relationship between church and culture was Um, mostly defined by power, especially as more time went on, because what I started to notice, although I don't I don't buy into progressive narratives too much, I started to see that 
the window in which a lot of this stuff was happening for my lifetime passed and then people just kind of got over it. They just kind of stopped talking that way. Not totally, not completely, but when was the last time I haven't heard anything and I, I pay attention to conservative news, really crazy conservative news sometimes. And I haven't heard very much about the war on Christmas, except for an occasional Starbucks cup or whatever it might be. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely calmed down from when we were kids. It feels kind of quaint whenever it happens. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember when that was a thing. Yeah, yeah. So I I started really to be disillusioned by this power construct, this um, relationship between things. And I really, I entered into a period of, I wouldn't say mourning or clinical depression, but just some sadness that, what I had done for so long is put myself in a place of power and tried to assert my will, my argument through vocal violence, not, you know, um, abusive uh, vocalization, but certainly of asserting forcefully, powerfully my way of thinking And I became sad because I started to see that that was disconnected from what Jesus did. Uh, He had every right to be mad at the Pharisees who were very clearly trying at every step of the way to get him. And yet he generally meets them with kindness and cleverness. He's sharp. There's no doubt about it, and he is critical, but he is never too mean, and he is never violent, certainly not violent in his approach to people he disagrees with. Even when he called them broods of vipers? I think even then. I think there's a case to say that that's not violence, um, but that's Thanks for throwing a wrench. Well, I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> it just occurred to me. Like, I don't know I mean, that you're wrong. I just wonder. Yeah, I really do think that looking at that a bit closer, he's, you could probably contextualize it and say he's calling them out for what they're doing. Hmm. That he's not necessarily, he's, I mean, he's not violent. I don't think. I don't think he's verbally violent. He might be angry, and they're certainly angry, and I'm not going down the route of (laughs) righteous anger because I think that's all horseshit. Um, (laughs) But he certainly gets angry because he's a human being, and human beings get angry. He lives out that anger in the temple. But by and large, um, I think you can make a pretty strong case that at least it's not the M.O. of Jesus to approach people with anger and supremacy. In fact, his general M.O. we see in the Last Supper, right, where he is washing their feet and he's saying, look, if you aren't a part of this, then you're not a part of me because you don't fundamentally get what I'm about. What I'm about is serving you with gentleness and with not superiority, but recognizing that because you're different than me, you are superior and I am here 
to serve you. And and also, Jesus spent a lot of time going to the people who were the outgroups, right? He spent all, he elevated women. He he healed lepers more than once. He went to the demon possessed, um, Samaritans, uh, crippled people, whatever it was, right? Like Jesus, what usually scandalized the Pharisees so much was that Jesus was with these people he wasn't supposed to be with, tax collectors, right? But Jesus. His main approach to on earth seemed to be, um, I mean, even his disciples, his his like the apostles were not people you'd think you'd pick if you were starting a religious movement. Right. They were fishermen and stuff, <laughs> but and tax collectors, tax collectors. Right. So um, but Jesus consistently went to the people he wasn't supposed to go to. This has been part two of our conversation around Christ and culture as Ryan and I discovered the ways in which the cracks started to show themselves in our inherited meaning around this topic. Join us next time as we talk about the way forward and what we have learned, what we can do with this idea that Christ and culture meet together. As always, thank you very much for listening and we hope to see you next time.